This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Paul Harding, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel Tinkers, which tells the story of George Washington Crosby, a clock repairman on his deathbed who meditates on his family history, particularly his father's struggles with epilepsy in Maine in the 1920s. His second novel continues with the Crosby family. It tells the story of Charlie Crosby, the grandson of the protagonist of Tinkers. In Enon, Crosby loses his young daughter and struggles to not let this define his life. Harding has a Master's of Fine Arts degree in fiction from the Iowa Writers Workshop and teaches at Harvard University and Grinnell College. He is also a drummer and musician, and I began the interview by asking him what drew him away from music and into writing. Well, I think like many, if not most, writers, I you know I started life as a reader, and I just um, I I just sort of loved the way my brain felt on my favorite books. Um, that after years and years of having having um, consumed books, I decided I wanted to um, have a shot at sort of answering back to my favorite books. Another quality of my reading that I that I sort of uh, loved is is the idea that different authors, uh, at least in, as it were, quote-unquote, literary fiction, which I just sort of take to be fiction that is inspired by other fiction, fiction that's inspired by other writing, it just sounded to me like all of these authors were having this great global and temp- like historical conversation among themselves about art and truth and beauty and all that sort of stuff. And I think, like a lot of a lot of a lot of writers, I, I I wanted to kind of throw my hat in the ring, and I wanted to sort of start answering back. And so when I, I had been in a I had been in a band for many years, um, and when the band took a break that proved to be final, I just I wrote a story. I tried to write a story and wrote an absolutely terrible story, and um, took my took my first took my first writing class. Luckily, the first teacher I ever had. Just by luck of the draw was Marilyn Robinson. She's a novelist, Marilyn Robinson. And she sort of very, very kindly, you know, dissected the story in front of me. <laughs> Gave me all the pieces back and said, yeah, this, you, could, you could end up having something interesting here. You know, she was very kind and gentle about it, but very, very thorough, too. Is that what led you to Iowa? It is, yeah. I, I, um, it was one of those you know, few moments. I'm not, you know, I admire epiphanies, but probably because I don't have any of them, but I, or many of them, um, but one epiphany was when I went, you know, within 10 minutes of of walking into the, Marilyn Robinson walking into the room and starting to teach and sort of model this life of the artist and thinker and all that sort of stuff. I just thought that's, that's the life I want for my brain and my soul. Did you write a lot between that first workshop and applying? Yeah, I did. I did, and, I, and a lot of it was a lot of it was um, a lot of it was bad. Um, a bunch of it became a novel that I that I worked on before I got there, and then for the two, the two years I was in the writers' workshop, I worked on a novel that 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 actually I uh, it 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 fell to it fell irreparably to pieces the day that I left the workshop. I'd worked on it for almost three years, and um, I just woke up. One morning, the le- you know the last day of, uh, the, of my my time in Iowa, um, 
and looked at the whole project from sort of one degree different angle than I had been looking at it, and the thing just collapsed like a house of cards. And that was that. I, that was, I spent three years learning how to not write a novel. And when you were writing this novel, it sounds like you didn't sort of recognize that maybe it was bad until the very last moment. What keeps you going if you feel like your writing is bad? Uh, the writing being bad is different than the story you're trying to write being bad. And so to me, it was always a matter of being a sort of an apprentice to and to art, you know, to trying to create a work of art. And art is always worth the time. Um, and, and even though that, that particular project sort of fell apart in my hands, it, it fell apart in very instructive and interesting ways. I mean, it was fascinating for me to write it. Um, it was fascinating for me to work on it. Um, it just turned out that the sort of conception of it was was all wrong. Even if the project didn't work out, all of, not all of the writing was bad. You know, there were some of the prose itself was pretty was was half decent and those moments where you finish a day's writing and then look at it the next day and it, you didn't want to just burn it. And then you didn't want to burn it a week later and a month later and six months later if you're still looking at it and thinking, hey, there's something in that. You know, that's a very kind of instructive process to sort of see, to sort of finally get some good prose and then be able to look at it and, 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 and sort of ponder the qualities that make it durable rather than disposable. What's your revision experience? A novel is a narrative that is too big to hold in your consciousness at once, to hold the meaning of consciously at once. Um, and actually, as I say that, I'm realizing, well, any, any good sentences, that, that sort of happens. But what I find is that when I'm writing, particularly with, say, first drafts, there are certain meanings and 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 aspects of any given sentence that I'm consciously tending to um, while I'm actually in the act of writing. But at the same time, there are all sorts of other meanings that are making it onto the page of which I'm not conscious. Because if you're using language at a certain level of density and complexity, um, you're, it's just other meanings are bound to accumulate on the page. And one of the most pleasing um, aspects of writing a novel is going back after the first drafts of these things and suddenly seeing, uh, you know, how, how, you know, your, your consciousness contains the tip of the iceberg. And then you go back and you look at the writing and you see the rest of the iceberg, as it were. And you, and you start to see things that you were not deliberately, you didn't deliberately intend, but all of a sudden there are these things that call, that call back and forth to each other across the text. Which you can, which you can then, you, you can then abet. You can then point up or use for accent. You don't overdetermine them, but you do, you do sort of orchestrate them in a way so that the book um, because is more poetic and economical and um, adheres to its own to its own logic. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Paul Harding, author of the novel Tinkers. Let's talk a little bit about Tinkers. I believe that came out of a short story. It did. The, um, the, the first probably 15 or so page uh, short story version of Tinkers was actually one of the two pieces that I ended up writing um, to, uh, for my application to the uh, Writers' Workshop in Iowa. It was, I mean, if people think it's elliptical now, I mean, it was only 15 pages. It was, it was, it was whatever, like, 
I mean, it was it was so elliptical, it was practically you know impenetrable. But roughly speaking, you could take the you could take the short story version of Tinker's, and the first five pages of the short story are roughly the first five pages of the novel. The middle five pages of the short story are the middle of the novel, and the final five pages of the short story are the final five pages of the novel. So I just sort of I, I had the whole story, and so I sort of grew it from the inside out. Um, and, uh, and and you know, it, it, I, I worked on it for years without showing it to anybody. So I did have that sort of what I think is probably a, a common experience among writers, particularly people who are working on somewhat longer narratives of of, um, of uh, you know that sort of constant fear you have to keep at, at bay that you're you know you're toiling for years um, making a half decent short story into a mediocre novel. <laughs> What made you go back to that story? Were you just done with school and you're like, oh, no, I got to do something. I might as well pick this up. Or was there a moment in your life or a conversation you had that made you envision what this could become? Well, it's a combination of all those things. I was one sort of circumstantial reason was that I had the good fortune of getting a um, fiction writing fellowship to a place in Provincetown, Massachusetts, which is Provincetown, is sort of the very, very end of Cape Cod, off of Massachusetts, and it's a um, six or seven month fellowship where you get to live, sort of on you know near the beach in a little tackle shed for seven months, and they give you a stipend, and they just say just go and write, go and write for half a year, and bring the keys back in May. Um, so I sort of needed a project to work on, and I mean with Tinkers, it was simply the case that. I hadn't been writing for very long. I didn't have much in the sort of file cabinet, as it were. And the the, uh, the short story version of Tinker's was by far and away the, the, the one thing that I had written that um, that just just regularly got the best response from readers. And it was also, I felt a closeness to it because it was um, based on family stories that my paternal grandfather told me about his childhood growing up in Maine, and I was very close to my grandfather. So it was an interesting way to, um, to um, you know, sort of commune with him and the memory of him. So it, it all just sort of, it just kind of made a kind of organic sense to start working on it. How did you go about writing that? It's it's definitely not told linearly. Did you write it in pieces? How What was that process for you? The, the process was very, I mean, I, the, the, the the easiest way for me to explain it is just that I, <laughs> it was very improvisational. I sort of just would get up every morning and just sort of write about whatever it interested me about that world or about those characters. It came to me in a very nonlinear fashion, but I also made a virtue out of that in that um, that nonlinear um, composition and then telling of the story or presentation of the story. Um, closely mirrors the fact that the story actually mostly takes place um, in in um, in the mind of George Washington Crosby, who is, um, he's in the process of dying and his consciousness is starting to sort of dissipate. Um, and so um, that dissipation coupled also with the fact that our consciousness, at least my consciousness, tends not to work in a very linear way. You know, I, I think of... Um, Sort of the, uh, a linear narrative to me, I associate with plot, and I associate plot with this kind of 19th century kind of Newtonian physics. Like there's the gears and the cogs, and every effect B has to have a traceable cause A, and everything has to kind of you know sort of go 
go, you know, one, two, three, four, right, you know, sequentially, in, you know, in order. Whereas my experience of consciousness is much more like it's something like quantum physics, which is, you know, that sort of superluminal, your mind, your thoughts can go from one place to another instantaneously. So you can go, I could go from my house here in Topsfield, Massachusetts, talking to you in 2013, to, um, you know, northern Maine in 1923, and I can just move around, and that's that's what we do, and we think, and so we think. So then, the, then the, the the criteria for the narrative making sense becomes more character driven. It becomes more emotional. It becomes more associative, and that's the way that I that I that I build up the narrative and tinkers. Well, I have read that you cut it up like a collage. You had pieces all on your floor and pieces that you wrote on back of napkins and then put it together that way. I did. I, I just I printed it all up. I cut all the different passages up with, with scissors and then taped them back together and sort of grouped them roughly into, I think the book is like four sections. And then within those sections, I... Um, I did lots of arranging and rearranging, and that was kind of almost a uh, like an amateur kind of music uh, music theory kind of exercise in which I'd think about um, counterpoint and tempo and what key things were in, and I'd think, well, if this passage ends kind of like with this note ringing in the reader's ear, what kind of harmonies or overtones do you get if the next passage starts? with this other note. And then that way I was able to get all sorts of, um, all sorts of extra stuff, all sorts of extra, again, like harmonies and undertones and chords and stuff like that, thematic, visual, kind of linguistic and otherwise, that I otherwise w- w- would never have been able to premeditate. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Paul Harding, author of the novel, Tinkers. You did face a lot of rejection when taking it out there in the world. You were committed to what you had on the page. You weren't going to change it. And what kind of mental strength did that take to be so committed to what you had on the page already? Those four or five years between trying to get it for initially trying to get it published um, and then not getting it published and then having it come out with um, having um, Erica Goldman at Bellevue Literary Press publish it were great because it it was just, you know, I had to really sort of give myself the, the talking to, you know, like, Paul, why are you doing this? Why are you trying to be an artist? Is it to be published or is it to make art? You know, and I, I sort of, um, I just, you know, I, I spent four or five years making art for art's sake. I mean, I, I hoped that eventually I'd get published, but I really did have to, sort of realistically consider the possibility that I would be a writer who did not publish. Um, and so in some ways that was disappointing for practical reasons, but it was also liberating for the best artistic reasons, which is that I just knew I could write whatever I truly wanted to write. I mean, I never th- thought about what an editor wanted. Um, and, and, and based on some of the rejection letters I got from editors, I was glad to do so, you know. I felt like I just knew what the book had to be. And if an editor said, oh, well, you know, the pace of life today is such that nobody wants to read a quiet, lyric, medi- lyrical, meditative, um, you know, pastoral, bucolic thing up in you know, I just say, well, I, I reject your rejection. I want to read it. It ended up being 
a kind of a mentorship to my own autonomous sense of aesthetics, really. Like, what I, what is it that I really am trying to go after when I'm trying to make a work of art? And it's and it's great because it's 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 um, so you know so far so good. It, you know, it, it it proved to be a good um, kind of quality control process. And Bellevue Press is associated with NYU Medical School. And right. um, they bought it. They were going to publish 3,500 copies, and they gave you a $1,000 advance. It was the greatest day of my life besides, you know, becoming a father and getting married and all that sort of stuff. Um, because I just, I mean, at that point, I, I, was ju- I just could not believe I was going to actually have a book out. For all of, for all of my sort of, you know, the hermit and the garret and uh, making art for art's sake, Art also is part of the essence of art is that it's a gesture or an act of fellowship. You know, I wanted, I, I wanted the book to be sort of out in the world. And um, so that sort of modest initial plan for it was, was just, was, was absolutely wonderful, was wonderful. Because I, I thought that it was never going to be published. I thought it was going to be in a drawer forever. So that was a kind of authentication or legitimate, you know, a kind of experience of just the art being legitimized. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Paul Harding, author of the novel Tinkers. One of the things that you have mentioned is that the stories come to you, that it has this own life. You're not in control. Is that your your writing experience? Is that these these voices speak to you and you're just this conduit for something else? That's my experience of it. You know, I'm sure that there, you know, everybody you talk to will have variations on that theme or could even have an opposite experience. For other writers, I'm sure it's a sheer act of willpower, sort of invoking, you know, sort of wresting these stories from the universe. But I have this very sort of, uh, you know, idealistic kind of platonic idea that every story I try to write, the, the, you know, the perfect version of it sort of already exists out there, some in some parallel universe or parallel time and it's just my job to go out there and fetch it and sort of bring it back down through the atmosphere and and um and 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 render it into language you know precipitate it into language as best i can and so in the stories when they come to me you know it just it's they sort of come unbidden as it were and i just start to kind of um explore them i interrogate these sort of germinal images or ideas, and just l- allow them to unfold and complicate. Um, so, in the case of, say, Enon, I uh, just had this kind of visual image that was—it uh, was basically—it was like a silhouette. It was, or it was like a—I uh, can't—I can, I can't remember the artist's name. She does these. She makes these silhouettes, and they look at when you first look at them, they look like they're these sort of quaint and rococo. Um, uh, paper cuttings, still of of like anti antebellum Southern um, uh, um, scenes, and then the closer you look at them, you realize that there's all sorts of you know terrible things going on, and it's about slavery and gender and violence and all this sort of stuff. But the closer you look at them, the more they, they the more they sort of a narrative emerges out of them. And uh, the experience I had with Enon was I just had um, had this image of like the silhouette of a hill at midnight, um, and the hill was studded with gravestones, and there was a man sort of uh, um, half-crawling, kind of scampering along the crown of the hill, 
and I just knew that um, it was it was midnight. He shouldn't be out there. He was up to no good. And down at the bottom of that dark hill um, was the grave of his daughter. That's all I knew, and that he was, and I knew that he was sneaking behind her headstone because he was ashamed of what he had gotten up to at night since her death. So the first thing I wrote was you know, sort of like a guy in a guy um, up to no good uh, in a graveyard at night. You said at the beginning that one of the things that brought you to writing is is reading. And I'm wondering if you can read something from an author that speaks to you. It either influenced you as a writer or you think is beautiful, if there's something like that. Sure. Um, this is a piece that, that um, is an example, an embodiment of everything that we've been talking about, too. It's just a, it's a, it's, I'm just going to read a very a brief poem by Wallace Stevens, who's one of my favorite writers. Um, it's a brief, brief poem that he wrote toward the end of his life called The uh, Final Soliloquy of the Interior Paramour. Light the first light of evening, as in a room in which we rest, and for small reason think the world imagined is the ultimate good. This is, therefore, the intensest rendezvous. It is in that thought that we collect ourselves, out of all the indifferences, into one thing. Within a single thing, a single shawl wrapped tightly round us, since we are poor, a warmth, a light, a power, the miraculous influence. Here, now, we forget each other and ourselves. We feel the obscurity of an order, a whole, a knowledge, that which arranged the rendezvous within its vital boundary, in the mind. We say God and the imagination are one. How high that highest candle lights the dark. Out of this same light, out of the central mind, we make a dwelling in the evening air in which being there together is enough. Is poetry a big influence for you? Um, I, you know, I'm not. I would not say that I read much poetry. I, um, some of my favorite authors are poets, so I read a lot of Wallace Stevens and a lot of Emily Dickinson. Those are probably the two poets with whom I'm, I'm I'm most familiar. And then Walt Whitman. I've been reading some Robert Browning, some of her his personae poems, which are wonderful. My writing. I mean, if you look at Tinker's or Enon, it's the writing that uh, the influences that I wear on my sleeve are all of the New England transcendentalists, and I I I think of Wallace Stevens as the inheritor of that tradition. I think he he came out of that idea of you know the individual experience, the you know, being mindful of consciousness and experience and perception. What about a short passage from something you wrote? It could be something that was hard or tricky or changed from the first draft. Or just something that you love? Sure, I can read um, maybe as a page. I'll read a page from Enon, uh, and this is this is um, maybe just sort of indicative of uh, you know you get these uh, while I'm in the process of working on novels. Again, I mean, this is anecdotal. I'm sure every 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 writer has this, but you uh, you end up with these little like single page passages that in some way kind of encapsulate the. You know the kind of the predicament of the book as a whole, and so I, I think this is just this is just one of those things that sort of came together in a fit, and it was um, it was actually un- 
uncharacteristically easy to write. I wrote it in one pass and and and, and didn't revise it. But this is um, this is just the um, the narrator Charlie. This is just sort of him in, the, at the, in his worst predicament. I looked over at the snow-covered golf course where kids sledded every winter and imagined the dead having sledding parties at midnight on the back slope of the hill, warming their finger bones in blue fires that they kindled in granite urns, laughing when they held their hands inside the flames. I imagined them melting clumps of dirty ice in a tin bucket over the fire and drinking the hot, muddy brew and cackling with glee as it ran off the backs of their jawbones and spattered down their ribs. I imagined them using headstones for sleds. The idea made me nauseated, and I repented of it. I had the urge to go to Kate's stone and kneel in front of it and say, I'm sorry, over and over again, because no matter how much I knew better, I could not stop myself from stepping over the same dark threshold night after night trying to follow her into the country of the dead in order to fetch her back, even though she visited me in dreams and never left my waking thoughts. Memories of her feeding the birds and practicing running and playing cribbage were not enough. I was ravenous for my child and took to gorging myself in the boneyard, hoping that she might possibly meet me halfway or just beyond, one night, if only for an instant step back into her own bare feet onto the wet grass or fallen leaves or snowy ground of the living Enon so that we could share just one last human word. It sounds like what you were talking about was one of your first images. Right. Yeah, that was that, that, that's sort of a, a, a later sort of um, fermented or distilled version of it. I mean, because it's, it's interesting because it's, it's, um, with that first image, you're constantly going back and realizing the implications of that first image. So I constantly sort of circle back to it. No matter how far away I, I wander from that image, it's always, okay, so now knowing all this new stuff, let's circle back to that initial image and revisit it and look at it again. Um, and each time, we, you know, each time you as the author yourself, but also each time you bring the reader back to that image, you understand more of the human implications to it. Thanks so much for sharing all this. One of the features of First Draft is each week I ask my guests the same five questions at the end of the interview, starting with, where do you write? Now I write in my study whenever I have a chance. Um, but a lot of times when I'm out on the road, I just I have to write on an airplane or a hotel room. But um, I have the ability to write anywhere, anytime, because I have young children. Um, they're not so young anymore, but um, at a time, at, at one time when they were very young, I could and did often enough write with them sort of crawling all over me. So <laughs> I could sort of do it anywhere, anytime. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't, I don't make any differentiation between, you know, my, you know, walking around time and writing. I'm just, I'm always writing if I'm not literally typing. So I rarely go away from writing. I suppose when I sort of want to just sort of let my brain unravel, I, um, I attend or watch um, sports events. I'm kind of, I love baseball and, and hockey. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Now I show it to my agent. She is an absolutely wonderful reader with a jeweler's eye and an unerring sense of, um, of authenticity. 
how have you dealt with rejection? I reject rejection. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 um, I, I just feel like the, the final authority on any given work of art is the work of art itself. Um, and if somebody rejects it, then it's usually a matter of taste. And uh, what is your favorite word? I suppose love is, you know, this is sort of the idea of love, you know, giving out onto being kind and being gentle and careful of other people and their souls and how important they are. You know, very humanist answer. But yeah, I guess it has to be love. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Paul Harding, author of the novel Tinkers. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.